We're going to be looking at uh, a different passage tonight than has been our normal fare. We've been going through the book of Numbers, as, as you know, and uh, I hope it's okay with you. I'm going to deviate from it just for, for tonight, for reasons, I think, that will become uh, apparent. Israel is on everyone's mind today, more than ever before, messages from the highest places in our land, from the Oval Office, uh, are emanating about Israel. The world's attention is on Israel, and uh, surely God's attention is on Israel. Some of us soon will be going there, and uh, on Monday, as a matter of fact. And so, I'm taking a few liberties here, and, and so I, I want to talk to you about uh, Israel for a little bit. Um, in ancient Israel, it was customary for the people to go up to a place called Jerusalem. Undoubtedly, you're familiar with it. They would go up to Jerusalem, and they would go up because it was elevated above uh, the surrounding area. So from any direction you approached Jerusalem, you would be, you would be as far as elevation, going up. And the ancient Israelites went up to Jerusalem uh, many times, but on three times in particular. It was a pilgrimage, if you will. They went up on three of the feasts of Israel. You're familiar with Passover. That's one of the feasts of Israel uh, that motivated the people to go up to Jerusalem. Also Shavuot and another holiday we call Shavuot, Pentecost, and Sukkot, or the Feast of tabernacles. And so they would go up, Jews from all over the place. And though they were the same culturally, they oftentimes would speak different languages because they would be coming from all over, you see, to make pilgrimage, to march, to assemble together so as to proceed up to Jerusalem. And in the course of doing that, they would sing. And for one reason, it would make the journey, mostly on foot, go faster. Uh, but, 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 but it was more than just that. They were filled with joyful expectation and anticipation of their arrival when they entered through the gates of Jerusalem. And so they would sing songs which are called the songs of ascent. The songs of ascent because they were sung as they ascended, you see, up to Jerusalem. And you might be surprised to know, I hope blessed to know, that we have down to this very day preserved for us with accuracy a collection of these songs of ascent. And they are contained in the Psalms, Israel's ancient hymn book. Specifically, Psalms 120 to 134, right in your Bible, are the songs of ascent which were sung on these three occasions by ancient Israel. And I want for us to take uh, a brief look tonight uh, at one of those songs of ascent. It is in Psalm 122. Psalm 122, just a few verses, but fairly striking verses, I think think you'll see. And so this is what it says, first verse of Psalm 122. I was glad. David is the writer, you know, David, we're told this. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house 
of the Lord. House of the Lord. You think temple, but when David wrote this psalm, the temple did not yet stand. That was left to be constructed by his son Solomon. But there was a tabernacle. There was a special place there in Jerusalem, the place where God established his Shekinah, his his glory, his Shekinah glory. And that's where the people went to worship Almighty God. David said, I was glad. When they said, they said, all the people said, it's time, prepare, it's time to go up to Jerusalem. Everyone, you, David, everyone, get ready. We're going to Jerusalem. I was glad, he said, when they said to me, let's lay aside everything else. Let's forget about everything else. Let's get ready to worship the Lord of Lords, the King above all kings in Jerusalem. And then verse 2, our feet are standing Within your gates, O Jerusalem. There's a gap between verse 1 and 2. Verse 1 is the invitation to get ready to go. Verse 2, they've arrived. And can you imagine, see if you could get back thousands of years and try to relate to the experience of these pilgrims. Finally, they arrive. Our feet are standing. Here they are. Look, they're looking, they're looking. They're trying to take it all in. It was an overwhelming visual experience for them. There they are in Yerushalayim, the city which was so important to the Jewish people then and irreversibly so now and forevermore. Our feet are standing within your gates. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Yerushalayim. The journey has ended. This is our ultimate destination, Jerusalem, the capital established by David HaMelech, David the king, ours bequeathed to us undeservedly, however graciously by Almighty God. There was already a people group in Jerusalem, the Jebusites, uh, part of the Canaanites, but God said, David, replace them, remove them, take it. Is that fair? Absolutely not. It, do you want what's fair? Listen to me. Don't ever ask God to be fair. Don't ever ask him to do what we deserve. Listen to me. He creates humankind in his own image. He distinguishes us from every other created thing. He makes us in his own image. We say, wow, this is really great. He gives us one thing to do in paradise. One restriction on our sinful inclinations. Do not eat from the fruit of that tree. And that's what they do. They sin. And bring death and all kinds of things upon the human race. But Almighty God intervenes and clothes them. Uh, they tried to clothe their own nakedness with an apron of leaves. That's man's first religious attempt at winning God's favor through self-effort. But no, he clothed them with the skins of animals. It's a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, for human sin. And he gives them this marvelous opportunity to be just as if they had not sinned. And later on in human history, they gather together the peoples of the world. God said, be fruitful and multiply, spread out. They said, no, we want to be in the city and we want to build a big tower so high that it can elevate our 
status and stature. Maybe we could even be on the same footing as Almighty God. Genesis chapter 11, I think it is, Tower of Babel. You want what's fair? Then God would be right to, at that point, have wiped out the entire human race. But he did not do that. In the very next chapter, we get God speaking to Abram. He wasn't Abraham yet. He brought Abram from Ur of the Chaldees, a pagan place. He said, follow me to a place you know not of. I will tell you about it. And he said, there you'll be fruitful and multiply. And and he said, those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. And he appeared to Abram and he said, Abram, I will give this land to you and your descendants forevermore. Is it fair? It isn't fair. It's grace. It's amazing grace. That almighty God, whose holiness we have so terribly offended, decided to choose a particular people group and put them in a particular land so that a very particular Jewish Messiah would come. That God chose anyone through whom to affect his redemptive plan is sheer and utter grace. So God puts Abraham's descendants, those who came through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a particular people in a particular land for a particular purpose. And their capital is Jerusalem. then, now, always. If you read the Bible, you'll find out. Always. And these pilgrims make their way through the gates of Jerusalem and utter these words. Our feet are standing within your gates. But things changed quite radically. Uh, We're going to fast forward quite a bit historically. Uh, Things changed quite radically for Abraham's descendants, Jewish people, in A.D. 70. In A.D. 70, uh, the land was... uh, Uh, under the control of the mighty Roman Empire, I think as many of you know. And in A.D. 70, uh, through the vehicle of the mighty Roman legionnaires, particularly the 10th Roman legion, uh, commanded by uh, the general Titus. Titus, under orders of his father, the Roman emperor Vespasian, uh, came into Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and burnt it to the ground, slaughtered hundreds of thousands of Jews, and destroyed the temple. The temple. A magnificent temple built by Solomon, enlarged by Herod, standing in the time of King Jesus. Marble, gold, high. Pilgrims would come from miles around, and you could see it from a distance as the sun shone off it. And Titus absolutely destroyed it. He cut down trees on the Mount of Olives. It's still not as, uh, as filled with olive trees today as it was before Titus got his hands on these olive trees. And he used it to burn down the city. You can go to Jerusalem today and you can still see the stones which were up on the platform on which the temple stood cast down 2,000 years ago. They're still there. You can see them. Titus did that. And he told the Jews, you're out. 
you no longer will have access to your holy city, Jerusalem. You no longer will have access uh, to your temple. And all that he left uh, in A.D. 70, <laughs> all that is left today, there is no temple. If you go there, look all you will. Uh, since A.D. 70, no temple has been rebuilt. When they buckle up, there will be. It, but there hasn't been just 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 yet. But, 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 but there will be, but, but not just yet. And so all that's left is what we call here the Wailing Wall, but what they refer to there as the Western Wall. And there you see a bit of a depiction of it. You see that wall? That's not the temple. All it is is a wall that would contain uh, the earth, uh, which was compacted, forming a platform on which the temple was positioned. This is simply the perimeter wall to hold all those uh, earthen works together. And it was built by Herod. You see this wall? Imagine going down from the street level. See those people praying there? We call it the Wailing Wall, uh, but I I Israelis refer to it as the Western Wall. And imagine being there, but imagine yourself somehow making your way underground 50 more feet. If you did that, you would be on the street level, which the Lord Jesus and his followers made use of 2,000 years ago. It's there. In fact, you get there. <laughs> you can see to the left a little arched way. You go through there. It's a tunnel. And you go underground, 50 more feet. See, it's been built up over 2,000 years through the rubble of wars and civilizations and all that. That's not... Imagine this wall going down 50 more feet. It's the holiest site for the Jewish people. It's all that's left of the temple. And so they go there. This is the place, you know, where they go to pray and they put in sometimes on notes little prayers and put them in the... In the crevices, this, this kind of thing. Uh, but the Jews didn't have any longer any access to it since A.D. 70. See, the Romans said, get lost, you're out of here. And so the Jews became dispersed around the world. I mean, all over the place, you find Jews. Listen, just between you and me, this is just a secret. Don't let this out. Some even found their way to Texas. I'm not kidding you. There's, there's a rumor going around. We're all over the place. I'm telling you, folks, we're like roaches. You can't get... <laughs> Stuart Roachberg. I changed my... We're like all over the place. We're dispersed all over the place. We've been thrown out of the land, and we've not had access to this place, to this western wall in, uh, well, in 2,000 years. But then something happened. Uh, it was on May 14th, 1948. Um, it's a miracle what happened. Israel was reconstituted. So after uh, thousands of years, it, it came back alive from the dead. May 14th, 1948, you could go to the place in Israel, in Tel Aviv, where David Ben-Gurion, first prime minister, made the declaration. The world's sympathies were then with Israel because it was post-Holocaust, and people were saying, all right, let's find a place for these Jews. You know, we put enough of them in the ovens. Let's give them a country. So, so, so here they are back in the land, May 14th, 1948. But even at that point, 
They didn't have access to this wall, to this holy site. Why? Because it was under Jordanian control. Uh, Jordan controlled it. And Jordan did not permit access to the religious sites of other religious groups. Did you know that? Absolutely not. And so even though the Jews are back in the land there in May of 1948, they couldn't go to this place given by God. They couldn't go to pray until 1967. And I bring up the date because our president has. So I just want to piggyback out of respect for the president. And since he made an issue of this, uh, I'll just follow his agenda. He wants us to know about 1967. That's good. I used to think the key thing about 1967 is that that's when I graduated from high school. But really, that's not as historically significant as what happened in uh, June of 1967, 44 years ago, specifically June 5th, 1967. Israel was attacked by Syria and by Jordan and by Egypt, June 5th. And the war, known as the Six-Day War, began on June 5th, ended on June 10th. Israel won. Why? Of course, these things are not explainable, except that God is true to his word, as we have seen on our June 5th. <laughs> so they did on theirs. So the Six-Day War came to an abrupt end, and as a result, Israel's land expanded. And so they um, came into possession of places like uh, uh, the Golan Heights from Syria. This is very key if you're a military person. You always take the high ground. You always take the hill. Now they had the high ground. Syria would uh, oftentimes bomb the population below, but now um, Israel was in possession of it. It could protect its citizenry. And so as a result of what happened in 1967, Israel came into possession uh, of, of the Golan uh, heights and uh, also the Gaza Strip. You hear about Gaza. It's a strip of land um, uh, along the Mediterranean coast of uh, Israel, Gaza. You know about Gaza. So Israel, is, after the 1967 war, came into possession of Gaza and also the Sinai Peninsula. This is from Egypt, from Egypt. And then from Jordan, Israel came into possession of what you hear today. It's called the West Bank. You know, it's the West Bank of the Jordan River. You know what it is? It's ancient Judea and Samaria. It's ancient Judea and Samaria. How could Israel uh, be the illegitimate occupiers of what God gave them uh, centuries ago? It's Judea and Samaria. But, but it's not just the West Bank that Israel came into possession of June of 1967, also East Jerusalem. You know what's in East Jerusalem? This wall. <laughs> it's the site of the temple. And so on June 7th, June 7th, 1967, Israeli paratroopers, here's a little depiction of them. This is an actual photo taken June 7th, 1967. These are Israeli paratroopers. 
they enter the old city of Jerusalem for the first time in 2,000 years. And they're standing by the western wall, which they did not have access to for 2,000 years. And you should hear the shouts and the exclamations of joys and the prayers. We have something called the Shehechiyonu, which was uttered in, in, those, in those days. For the first time, and they're on their radios, and they're telling their superiors, we are here, we are here. We are at the wall, the holiest site in Judaism, which they have been denied access to for, for, for 2,000 years. And I can only imagine that they may, some, have uttered perhaps the same words of their ancient predecessors from Psalm 122, our feet are standing within your gates, Jerusalem. I'll bet out of there we have ordinary shumats, our soul. I bet their souls cried out the same thing that their predecessors did in Psalm 122. Our feet are standing in the gates of Jerusalem after 2,000 years. Jerusalem, verse 3 that is built as a city that is compact together. Folks, it's bordered. This is a shot of Jerusalem looking from the Mount of Olives uh, westward. This would have been the perspective your Lord and mine would have had, except for a noticeable difference. Do you know what it is? Yet the Dome of the Rock was not there. You know why it's there? Because my people have turned from our own Messiah. That's why it's there. I'll tell you who our enemy is. Us. And unrepented sin in us. And when you take yourself out from under the watch care of the chief shepherd, ravenous wolves, predators, will take advantage of you. That's the explanation for the Dome of the Rock there. I blame no one. I blame me. I blame my people. Entrusted with so much privilege, the very oracles of God, the prophets, everyone. And we have turned to false gods down to this very day. Anyway, this is the view. The Lord, by the way, you can't see a little off to the right. You see a wall. You can't really see. It's a gate. It's bricked in. It's a double gate. Buckle up. That's the one through which the Lord, when he returns, will enter in again. The Mount of Olives will split, half go north, half south, and he will enter in. No, no, not like Palm Sunday, humble and mounted on a colt. Oh, no, that's the Lamb of God. First visitation, second time, Lion of Judah. Look out. You better know him as Lamb of God. First. Right through there. Why is it bricked in? See, it's a Muslim cemetery right there. Because the Muslim leaders read the Bible. They found out that we naive people of the book think Jesus is going to come through the gate. So just as a deterrent, they, they put bricks in a cemetery there so that we don't go through. I'm not kidding you. There it is right there. You're looking at it, right? So what you see there, that's the Kidron Valley. It's on the east side. On the south is something called the Hinnom Valley. My point is, there's nothing to Jerusalem. Compact. Tons of people. Little land area, a 
yet the world, the world's attention is on it. Why? Because the deceiver of the brethren, Satan, read the Bible. And he found out that the Most High God is coming again to that place. And the sin of Satan is that he wishes to be like the Most High God. And so, if he can get control of Jerusalem and put that symbol of Islam on it, maybe he can keep this Jesus Messiah from returning there. I got to tell you, that's why Jerusalem is so important. It has nothing to do with geopolitical considerations. It has to do with spiritual warfare. Satan versus Savior. That's the explanation. Because i got to tell you something, folks. There's nothing to that place. It's a rocky, compact place. Why such interest? Because Satan wishes to supplant the Savior. And the Savior said he will rule and reign from that place. In fact, there will be a reconstructed temple where that beautiful dome of the rock is. Now, how is that going to happen? How will that be removed and make way for the... I do not think the Muslim authority is going to voluntarily remove it. It's just a... I just don't see it happen. I have no idea. But I don't have to. The means are up to God. God gave the message that it will happen. And you know, little things take place there all the time. They're called earthquakes. Bada boom! Goodbye, Dome of the Rock. That's all. You know, uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Our president speaks about it. The United Nations speak about it. A divided, you know, two-state solution. Half of Jerusalem will be the capital of Israel and half the capital of Palestine. That's part of the peace process. Did you, I don't know if you knew that. So everyone's attention is on, on Jerusalem. In fact, in the medieval world, they had cartographers, map makers, and those who had a biblical inclination. Do you know how they would draw their maps in those days? They would put Jerusalem as the center of the universe. In fact, they referred to it, get this, umbilicus. Does this sound like umbilical cord? Umbilicus mundi, Latin, the navel of the world, the belly button of the world. That's what they call it. It's kind of like here. Have you ever seen maps? One is labeled the United States of Texas, where Texas is smack down. It's kind of like that. Medieval cartographers, they put Jerusalem there. Well, that may be a little far-fetched, but I got to tell you something, folks. It's the centerpiece of the world's attention still yet, again, and certainly throughout history. Very important to the Jewish people. Do you know 700 times Jerusalem is mentioned in the Bible? 700 times? Would you like to guess how many times Jerusalem is mentioned in the Quran? Zero. None. Why such interest in Jerusalem? While it was under Jordanian control, there was no movement to make it the capital of Palestine. Do you know no, uh, uh, no Arab leader of no notoriety wanted to make Jerusalem the capital? What's the big deal? All the Jews are in the land. And if the Jews are there, it proves two things. You want to hear what they are? It proves that the Bible is true and that the Koran is false. That's what it proves. Do you see what's at stake? That the Jews are there 
is only evidence of the fact that God kept his word. There's no explanation for how a dispersed people for 2,000 years end up on May 1948 back in the land. And it disproves the Quran because the Quran said the Jews, and by the way, Christians too, are forsaken people. The Jews forsook God. They were replaced by you guys, the Christians. But the Christians didn't do so hot either. So God wrapped up all his promises intended for the Jews and the Christians, and he gave them now for followers of Allah. That's why the dome of the rock is up there. You see the holiest site in Judaism, the Western Wall, is down here. And if you go down the block, you go to a holy site for Christians. It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. They're down. The Dome of the Rock is up. It's a very physical symbol of what's thought in the Islamic world to be the supremacy of Islam over Judaism and Christianity. And that's why you got to drive the Jews into the sea. Because folks, they don't look like God replaced or forsook them. Go to Israel. It's thriving. Are you kidding me? It's prosperous. It's a land of milk and honey. They grow date palms in the desert. They have irrigation techniques exported around the world. They grow more tulips in Holland. Are you kidding me? They have an aerospace industry that rivals ours. We're going with a group. Some are concerned. What if you get sick? Are you kidding me? A country filled with Jewish doctors? <laughs> are you kidding so, 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 so that's why, why, why there's so much attention. That's why, that, that, that's why you gotta get rid of these Jews. That's, that's why you gotta, the existence of the Jew today is a number one evidence that God keeps his word. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Why is that important to us? Folks, he's promised us our promised land. It's heaven. I need to know whether I can count on him. I can. And the evidence is Jews in the land after thousands of years. An evidence that God has been true to his word. And so this is a very important place, Jerusalem. So it says in verse 4, it's a place to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord. An ordinance for Israel to give thanks in the name of the Lord. For their thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. And now, folks, what is perhaps the most famous part of Psalm 122, verse 6. You know these words, I'll bet you. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's right there. Psalm 122, verse 6. Pray. It's such a... Here's the word. Jerusalem means city of peace. Is that not ironic? City of peace. So, is it, so, so here's what, what people are commanded to do. Pray for the peace of the city of peace. Would you like to guess what the Hebrew word for peace is? Yes, shalom. So here's what the psalmist is saying. Pray for the shalom of the city of shalom. It's a tremendous irony because this is a city... Uh, perhaps which has seen less peace than any other city in the history of humankind. Wars and conflict and hatred and strife and devastation and destruction and death down to this very day. Everything but peace. In fact, just to give you a little glimpse, uh, I'd like you to watch a, 
a, a brief video to, to, as a reminder of, of what happened uh, in 1967. Take a look at this, at this brief video. the borders of Israel and Palestine should be based on the 1967 lines. It cannot go back to the 1967 France. So they're sending a representative to broker peace between Israel and Palestine based on our president's invitation to encourage Israel to go back to its pre-1967 borders. Sure, France would love this. Anti-Semitic France would love this. Everyone loves it. Except the God of the Bible who says... You cannot give away what I have given to you and expect for there to be blessing in it. I respect this country and the office of the presidency, but I must respectfully take a strong stand against our president's Middle Eastern policy. It has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with spiritual realities. I think the leaders of our nations are really doing the best they can from a human point of view to quell hostilities and make for peace. But they fall far short. And the Lord Jesus, before he left, said, Peace, I leave with you. 
My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. Not as the United States gives. Not as the United Nations gives. Not as France gives. My peace I give to you. And until that happens, our president's plans will fall short. And if he persists in it, not only will his plans fall short, we as a nation will fall. I will prove it to you. I think we're already heading that way. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Do you know that's a commandment? Commandment. Would you like to see the Hebrew words for it? This is what it looks like. Pray for the peace. This was basically what it looked like to the Lord Jesus. <laughs> Pray for the Sha'alu. Shalom. There's a word. Yerushalayim. It's a little tricky, though. Hebrew reads from right to left. Not, not like English, left to right. So you have to start on the right. First word, Sha'alu. You know what that means? Desire. Desire. Yearn for. Want. The peace of Jerusalem. Sha'alu. Ask. Who do you ask? You ask the owner of Jerusalem. You know who the owner of Jerusalem is? Almighty God. Sha'alu. You ask the owner of Jerusalem. <laughs> you tell the owner, my great desire is for peace. In Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. This is my wish. This is my heart's desire. That is a commandment. The only city which we are commanded to pray for in the Bible is Jerusalem. Right there. I didn't say you don't pray for other cities. I'm just saying this is the only one we're commanded. You know how it says, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. This has the same force of command. Pray, yearn for, make it your heart's desire to seek peace in Jerusalem. Does that mean absence of military conflict? No. That's not what the word shalom means. Do you know what it means? It means an inner sense of well-being given as a gift of God by virtue of people's trust in God. That's what shalom means. Shalom doesn't just mean absence of conflict, no more war, no way. It means a sense of well-being, completeness, wholeness, harmony on the inside, which comes as a gift from the Prince of Peace, uh, the Lord Jesus. And we are told, pray that, desire it, seek it for Jerusalem, which is a representation of all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Shalom. So folks, that means if a person or a nation has evil desires, evil desires for Jerusalem, that is a sinful violation of the commandment of God. I'm not making a political statement. I'm making a biblical statement. So when is this question, will man's efforts succeed in bringing about lasting peace in Jerusalem? No. The Prince of Peace, the Sar Shalom, that's Jesus. He's the one who could do that. So then, folks, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem means two things. One, it's to ask the Lord Jesus to come into the hearts of people in the land and Jews worldwide today. That's the first thing. But second, it's to ask the Lord Jesus to come into Jerusalem soon.
To pray for the peace of Jerusalem, peace which can only be from him, is essentially to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's to welcome, it's to yearn for, it's to live with intense expectation of his soon return and the establishment of his kingdom on earth from a temple from which he will receive worship in that place called Yerushalayim. That's what it means to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And now don't miss part B of verse 6. It says, may they prosper who love you. Folks, there's a reward given to the one intent on praying for the well-being of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. It's not a promise of financial prosperity because the word prosper is the same Hebrew word meaning well-being. So you know what it means? If a person, if a people, if a nation prays for the well-being of Jerusalem as a blessed return on the investment, God will grant that person, that nation, its own sense of well-being. I want to ask you a question. Do we as a nation have this sense of well-being now? <clears throat> See, this is a marvelous promise. Pray for the well-being of Jerusalem and you shall have well-being yourself. But it implies a very severe consequence. You see, if there's well-being for the person or the nation seeking the well-being of Jerusalem, then that implies... There will be upheaval and distress and unsettledness for the person or the nation that does not seek Israel's well-being. I do not think the United States president is seeking Israel's well-being. I think he stuck his thumb in the eye of our number one ally. And I think that doesn't sit well with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Watch out. Be on the right side. It's not Republican. It's not Democrat. Be on the side of the ruler above all rulers. I memorized this first the other day to keep me from going crazy. The Bible is good. It keep you from going crazy. And it says in Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 9, uh, Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. I'm not denigrating the wise men of the nations, our own leaders in this country, not at all. They're quite wise. They're quite well educated. They're quite astute. Politically, I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying it's not good enough. <laughs> I'm just saying, instead of uh, uh, looking to solutions from human agency, why not fear the king of kings? Indeed, it is your due. Folks, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem brings blessing to the one praying it. Why? Because you're praying in keeping with what God has already said back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. Now, folks, again, when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're not just praying for the absence of war, land for peace in Israel has been a failed experiment. We don't have Bethlehem anymore. We don't have Jericho anymore. We don't have the West Bank anymore. Is there peace? 
Not even close. Land for peace is a failed experiment for sure. But when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're praying for a different kind of peace. In fact, you can see it implied. Can you look with me real quickly to verses 7 and 8 while I read? Count up the number of times you see the word within or something like it, within. I'll read it. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say may peace be within you. Three times, if I counted correctly, you see the word within. It's a very important word because the peace, the prince of peace, wishes to bring to Israel is an internal kind of a peace. It's not just peace with adversaries from the outside. And history has shown us that mighty nations don't fall from attack from the outside. The United States is not going to fall from anyone charging our borders. Are you kidding? We got the strongest, toughest military the world has ever known. And we ought to be proud of it. It's really, really great. That's not the problem. The foe's not out there. The foe's here, right here in our midst. Rome fell through immorality and degradation on the inside. I think the same fate looks like ours, unless the Lord grants us repentance. Good night, folks. We're calling evil good and good evil today. It's crazy to me. You can't even reason anymore. Morality, God's sense of morality has been turned upside down. Folks, it's just like Rome. And, and, and so this marvelous promise, don't worry about the enemies from the outside. No, no, no. God's promise is peace with inside, an internal kind of a peace. It's a within thing, the peace God longs and wishes to bring to Israel and to all people is a peace within on the inside, but it can only come as a result of peace with him. So, folks, when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're not merely praying for the absence of war. We're praying uh, that Israel would turn to her forsaken God, make peace with him through Messiah Jesus, and then experience his peace given them on the inside. That is true shalom. That's the kind of peace the world does not know of. That's the kind of peace that can only come from the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus. And speaking of him, he was in Jerusalem. Did you know that? <laughs> Many times. One time he's standing on the Mount of Olives. You can go there today. And he was looking over into Jerusalem. And he had a response to it that I think is different than our presidents and different than many today. Here's his response. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 and 42. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. There's a hardening against Israel today in theological circles and in international circles. The United Nations has issued more sanctions against Israel since its existence than against any other country ever. And the five wars thus far in the Middle East have all been perpetrated against Israel. She didn't inaugurate a war of conquest at any time, but the United Nations has sanctioned Israel. Its Security Council has sanctioned Israel more than any other, uh, uh, more than any other nation, more than terrorist nations. They sanction Israel, where you could go and freely live as a Christian. You can stand on a street corner and preach Jesus if you want. Now, people may not be thrilled with you. 
but the government will protect your right. There are mosques that are protected there. There are churches that are protected there. There are synagogues that are... The very Temple Mount houses the Dome of the Rock, which Israel gave to Muslim religious authority since it's such a sacred site to them. Do you think that's the case in Muslim-dominated Arab countries? Freedom of religion? Come on. Come come on. So, So the Lord Jesus, his response to Israel was not to harden. He wept. He wept over it. Can you imagine transcendent deity and flashed weeping? Why? He said, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. I wonder if he had Psalm 122 in mind when he said this. He wept and he said, if you had known the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. And to this very day, my people are blind so that they cannot see. My people will vote for the president again, probably, in the next election. Now I'm getting in trouble here, but, 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 but. it's a blind, it's a blind, it can only, but don't get this, that doesn't mean that God has rejected the Jews. Please read Romans 11. For I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about this mystery, lest you become arrogant in your own estimation that a partial hardening, Partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and then all Israel will be saved. For the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. Romans 11 verses 25 to 27. No, God has not rejected Israel and he will never reject you if you belong to him. You're in the son's hand. You're in the father's hand. You are secure. Evidence? God kept his promise to the undeserving Jews. He'll keep his promises to you. What are the things which make for peace? Well, our government says it's a two-state solution. Could you please tell me how it is a solution for there to be two states when one state doesn't recognize the right of the other state to be. Could you please tell me? Read the Hamas, read the Palestinian charter. Read it. You can look at, you can Wikipedia it. It's a stated purpose to destroy Israel. I want to know how you can have a two-state solution with a state whose stated purpose is your demise. You tell me. This is what the world community expects Israel to do. Would we do it? No. So that's not a solution. That's not the thing which makes for peace. Land for peace has not made for peace. Some of the most upset Israelis over these land for peace deals are Arab Israelis who did fine when they were citizens of Israel and Bethlehem and Jericho and now are in poverty. Those are not the things which make for peace. But what are the things which make for peace? I'll tell you what it is. It's the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the intercession, the return, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. And when it wells up in your heart, those are the, by your faith, by your acceptance of the Prince of Peace, those are the things that make for peace. Things the world knows not of. 
things even the wisest and best world leaders cannot bring to pass. And just one more bit of information here. Uh, Verse 9, a little motivation to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. For God's sake, the psalmist is writing, I will seek your good, Jerusalem. Do you get what it's saying? (laughs) If you love God, you will seek the good of Jerusalem. How does this fit? Folks, I don't have to tell you. Jerusalem is the area. This is the place of the birth of God's son, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his return, his earthly reign. This is the place where the house of God stood in temples no longer standing, but which will one day stand in this very place. This is the place where God's redemptive plan for all people, Jews, Arabs, Gentiles, blacks, whites, old, young, male, female, this is the place from which God's redemptive plan had its center, from which it's eminent. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the world. Now, we make it an application to our Jerusalem. I'm okay with that, but we're forgetting about the original intent. Jerusalem is still the epicenter of God's redemptive plan. Houston is not the epicenter of God's redemptive plan. I never saw Houston mentioned once in the Bible. Why are we moving so quickly past literal Jerusalem to allegorize it? Folks, this is where the gospel emanates. This is where it will come to fruition. This is the place where the Lord is going to return and establish his kingdom. This is where you're going to dwell with him during his earthly reign. It's not in South Texas. I don't want to hurt your feelings or anything like that, but don't become so centered on your particular place that you forget the center of God's place. It's not just ancient history. That's where he's going to return to. Jerusalem is the epicenter of God's redemptive plan. And that's why when you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, do you know you're praying about something that God is pleased with? For your sake, I pray for Jerusalem. That's where the Lord Jesus is coming, coming back to. Now, folks, I'm, I'm getting a little carried away. And it's part of my background. And you don't have to be like that. Uh, but you ought to get lathered up about what's going down. You ought to not sit back. You ought to not be neutral. You ought to make sure you're on the right side. Is it Israel's side? No! It's on God's side. 